Welcome to this week's episode of Fear, Honor, and Interest, the, the podcast where two straight white guys who went to Yale solve our nation's cultural divisions by talking about Ibn Khaldun. I'm your host, Charles Bobinger, coming to you from finally a little bit cooler Washington, D.C. With me on the line, as always, is my co-host, David Wheel, coming to us from Princeton, New Jersey, where I'm assuming it's nice out because I thought I heard kids playing outside your window a moment ago. Is it nice out? It is. It is pleasant. It has been a little wet, a little humid, uh, a little less pleasant than I would have hoped. It also, you know, like two two weeks ago, it was quite autumnal, and then it, uh, you know, the, the the heat came back, which, you know, I I grew up uh, referring to as an Indian summer, and um, I just wonder if that, you know. What are the origins of that phrase? Is that in, is any is there anyone who would be offended by such a thing? I wonder. Anyway, it got hot again. Now it's uh, now it's a tumble as you, as none of our uh, dear audience member can see. I'm wearing a sweater. David, by the way, is always wearing button up collared shirts um, for this show. He really gets dressed up for it. Um, I do not. Um, one of these days, if we hit our, if we ever hit our hundredth episode, I promise I will record it in a tuxedo because I own a tuxedo and I wear it once a year and I'm always looking for more opportunities to wear it. So, or in this case, once every two years. Yeah. Well, if we, if I do it every hundred episodes, it'll be once every two years, but I did wear it this year for a wedding. So, and I wore it last year for a wedding, which is why I bought it in the first place. Ah, so I learned how to tie a bow tie and everything, although I'll be honest, if we're doing it for the show, I'm probably not going to tie it that well. Okay. Although I am told that this is actually the crucial reason that pre-tied bow ties are wrong, is that an actually tied bow tie will always look a little off, because it'll never be perfect. And a pre-tied right, bow tie looks little... perfect. Exactly, it's got to looking have perfect little... is apparently bad in this instance, because... because. Uh, well, anyway... Those of you who have not heard our show before, this is the Sartorial Accoutrement Podcast. <laughs> where well, you know, this is actually, you know, tolerating imperfection uh, and, in fact, identifying and uh, valorizing that imperfection. And he, David said that while mussing up his own hair. <laughs> I, was, I was scratching my head. Or at least that's oh. what I thought I was doing. Um, but, uh... Indeed, the um, you know that this is not only essential to and in fact what we call the proper functioning of a pluralistic society. Um, you know, in a pluralistic society, by definition, what some people are doing will be understood as error by other people in that society, and yet you must tolerate it. Um, you know, I, I heard this very, very cleverly described in the context of um, uh, sort of evolutionary biology. You know, that in order for sexual selection and mutation to work properly uh, to achieve the greatest possible um, mix of traits to respond to environment. You know, each copying, each iteration has to be willing to accept a certain deviation, you know, from what is correct. And the way this, the, the analogy that was given was um, if you have four people uh, blindfolded, tied together, told to reach the highest point in the landscape that they're on, you know, they're on an island and they're told, you know, in order to be freed, you have to find the highest point on this island. And they're blindfolded and tied together. It's like, well, how are you going to do that? Uh, how are they going to approach that task? It's like, well, they can each take one step, you know, forward and then say, okay, my step was uphill, my step was downhill. Right? Are you with me? <laughs> uh, and if they do that, you know, if that's their heuristic, then they will sooner or later find a high point where if, you know, for each of them, it's like, okay, I took a step and it was downhill. They'll each respond with, if I take a step, it'll be downhill. However, they will have necessarily found the highest point on the island 
they'll just have found the the hill that was closest to them. Right. Um, the local maximum. The local maximum, and indeed. And in order to find the global maximum, they have to have a heuristic that tolerates more uh, wrong choices. So that they, for rather than one step, you know, you take 10 steps or 100 steps. And eventually they'll get to the point where, um, you know, the global maximum where, you know, even 100 steps will not get them to the bottom of that hill. And so even after a hundred steps, they'll end up going back up to the top of the hill and you go back and forth and you don't just sit there at the top of the hill. But the point is, you know, bringing this back into human society, um, you just have to give up on the idea that you can sit in peace, you know, like the sort of cartoon, you know, philosophers sitting on the mountaintop, You'll, you'll always be struggling back and forth at the top of the, you know, near the top of the hill. But you can adopt a system that gets you off the, you know, the little mounds uh, at the bottom. Well, something tells me this is going to be our two straight white guys who went to Yale solve America's cultural divisions by talking about next week. So. <laughs> it could be. Hey, I, you know, I like to test the patience of our listeners as early <laughs> as possible. Well, this is, I mean, for our listeners who do have a lot of patience, something I really want to recommend to you is to listen to the show for a few minutes at half speed because half speed makes anyone sound a little drunk and a little slurred. And with the kind of stuff we talk about and the way we talk about it, it's magnificent. If you have the patience <laughs> to do it, you should really try it. Um, David especially comes out really well from, from that, oh, way, that, that way. Of so, uh, this week's topic, as you might have guessed, is about America's political system. <laughs> um, we also already spent 50, over 50 minutes before we started, while we were recording, but before we started the show, talking about the Harvey Weinstein scandal, and that may end up becoming its own episode at some point in the future. Sure. Um, but for now, let's talk about America's political system. <laughs> uh, so we, we, we talked last week about what America is as an idea, as a system of values, and the differences that people would have in their perspective of what America should be informs a lot what they're trying to do to change America now. And, uh, and But the efforts to do that are really shaped, I mean, because there are no tangents, the shape of the island and the direction of up or down from this point or that point is something that comes up with uh, with America's politics because of the way its system is structured. If you, uh, when you look at uh, the way that we've structured a system for how things, how legislation get, gets passed and how politicians get elected, I mean, those are your oh, this was a step down, this was a step up. Bit by bit, we find these extra little places that seem better one step at a time, but over the long term can cause great damage to our society, perhaps getting us stuck on the smallest mound in the island that just happens to be closest to where we started. Because, um, I mean, one of my thoughts about something that's been happening to politics over the time I've been politically aware, which is about 20 years, but especially over the last decade or so, is that America's system is getting closer and closer to being a solved game, at least in the hmm. sense of... Um, a lot of short-term interests because uh, if you looked at if you go back to 2006, we saw a situation where the Democrats took over the House and the Senate somewhat unexpectedly because of how unpopular George W. Bush was, and they decided we're going to really make opposition to Bush. You know that's going to be our core value. They they didn't instruct him on literally everything, and there were some things that they went around with, but the idea that simply attacking the incumbent is incumbent is a way to get back into power is something that the Republicans would then go even further with in 2010. And then it worked even better for them than it had for the Democrats in 2006. And you find the situation where, because people learn bit by bit, oh, this might be bad for the long-term health of the Republic, but it's good for this election cycle. People are going to do what's good for that election cycle. When people say, um, when people come, when voters complain about the politicians that get elected, the reason you get politicians who who will do whatever it takes to get elected is because those are the politicians who get elected. Right. And that's kind of on the that's ultimately on the voter. I mean, there are lots of things that make it difficult for the voter to have proper information. But 
you will end up with the politicians that of the style that you want to elect. If you want to elect the politician who gives a charismatic, loud performance and seems really morally clear, like Donald Trump did, then you're going to end up with people like Donald Trump. You don't get to complain that they don't sit down and discuss our differences nicely if you only elect the ones who yell at people. I think morally clear is a somewhat unclear phrase in this context. I think you mean uh, who speaks with certitude, you know, who speaks with total confidence. Well, people conflate the two issues, which is, I mean, people's morality, people will view... I mean, I have a particular view. No, but I mean mean this seriously. I wasn't just... Oh, no, I agree. I agree. because, Because people who supported him, you know, knew that he was not a morally unambiguous figure. And we, we've talked about this before, right. um, you know, but they, but they did appreciate his seeming certitude, you know, his, but, but that his confidence on what you, with emph- emphasis on the con. Yeah. It, I, yes, I exactly. It depends on what yeah. you consider to be, um, to be moral though. I mean, I think part of the issue here is that the people who would say that he spoke with moral certitude are people whose view of morality is not the same as ours necessarily. Yeah. Well, that, um, that, that is for sure. Yeah. But, um, and I don't, well, I wasn't, I wasn't saying moral certitude. I said certitude. And I meant right. that specifically that they, what they were drawn to was that he was so, you know, that he would give these pronouncements. And of course, someone else looking from the outside would say, wait a second, his pronouncement like two weeks ago is totally different from what he's right. saying now. But that uh, going to the charisma aspect, right? Charisma and certitude go together yes. um, because that charisma draws people into the, the illusion that what is being said is all you need to know about the subject. Right. And yeah. people really don't like it when what's being said suggests that there's a lot to know about the subject. I mean, Hillary Clinton really, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump were extremes just... of this phenomenon. She's <laughs> yeah. the one who can't sit there and just give a straight answer. And people were so mad that she couldn't give a straight answer that they were perfect. That, well, I mean, most of them obviously went for Hillary Clinton, but but people in enough places went for were convinced by Donald Trump who would give them a straight answer that was a lie. Like it, was, right. it was a clear answer. It was an unambiguous answer, and it was wrong. Right. Um, somebody, I want to say H.L. Mencken, because I just attribute every great saying to him, <laughs> had said that um, for every complex problem, there is an answer that is simple, clear, and wrong. Yeah. And that's what we... By the way, David, are you on an exercise ball? What's going on over there? No, I just... Uh got off my chair i've been it's sort of the same concept as exercise ball but i'm just uh, kneeling at the moment in front of the computer okay you're so you're protesting the anthem is what i'm hearing (laughs) that the anthem of our show is now being protested and i don't think we should have players on the field who no even even worse i am attempting to kneel in the um position immediately preceding the the prostration for uh, Muslim prayer. Oh, uh, it just well, happened then. to happened to be the way that I was. And we did. And this is the this one topic. time you're not in Istanbul giving us the call to prayer over the podcast. So, yeah, well, you may even hear church bells ringing. Oh, well, I mean, <laughs> you know, people complain, oh, the Muslim call to prayer is so loud. It's a problem in our neighborhoods. And really, have you ever thought about church bells? Like you're just so used to those that you don't notice them. Exactly. Um, but Anyway, that actually does raise a quick side note because it, it fits in with what we've been talking about. Oh, we want this moral clarity. What is, you know, what is the moral thing we're discussing? This anthem flag protest um, is a, a pretty good example of where right. our political system fails us because it's so easy to get up and say the flag, the anthem, they must be honored. These people are disrespecting it when they're not protesting the anthem. They're protesting you know, treatment of black civilians by police officers. Right. And they're doing it in a form that happens to take place during the anthem, which is, if anything, really exists simply to point out that America is not perfect and has things it has to strive to achieve to reach the lofty ideals that the flag is supposed to represent. Um, But you have to pretend America is already perfect during something like that, or you're considered to be not respecting yeah. it. And I want to say that the thing that bothers me the most about people being upset by the, the kneeling is that in every other circumstance, kneeling is considered more respectful than standing. <laughs> right. It's right. I like they, like they've said, it's not the anthem. It's not the flag they're protesting. They're kneeling to make a statement about how we're not achieving our ideals. And to say that that's disrespecting the flag when kneeling is one of the most, the yeah. most respectful positions you can yeah. be in. No, I mean, I, I, 
you know, agree with you to an extent here. Um, I think that the problem with a lot of Trump's, and basically just so much of any topic that comes up about Trump, it's like, is it 3D chess or is it, you know, a toddler throwing spaghetti on the high chair? You, I mean, know? you can it, keep the analogy. It's it's not 3D chess. It's a child who's just throwing the chess pieces at you. So, I mean, th- those are – that's kind of the the approach to any, any of these topics. It's like some people will say, oh, there's this hidden logic, and then other people say, no, there's no logic. It's just a rambling. And – it's not always just one or the other. And with this issue too, you know, not all of the kneeling is disrespectful. Some of it is to say, you know, I love this country. I demand that this country afford me the rights that I deserve. Um, A respectful, insistent, demand for fair treatment and justice, uh, which as we know from the civil rights era, even that is not respected. You know, even that is seen as upper, you know, uh, being uppity. Um, but you know, there's kneeling and there's kneeling. And sometimes, you know, many of the shots that I, that I saw, of, of Kaepernick, it's like, it's not respectful kneeling. It's, I mean, he looks like he is disrespecting the, the, the process, you know, in the way, in his posture and the contrast with, um, there was this, um, baseball player, like the first baseball player to kneel. It could not have been more distinct where this guy, you know, he knelt, but he had his hand on his heart and his cap in his hand. And he was looking, he was gazing up, you know, uh, at the flag, presumably. I mean, it wasn't in the same shot, but you know, there's a there is often a kernel of truth that that makes these reactionary attacks on protest movements successful. You know, if there if that kernel of truth exists, the reactionary effort is you know is much more successful. Um, and I think in this instance, unfortunately, there is a kernel of truth where You know, people who say this whole country is damned and cannot be improved because, you know, white supremacy is at the heart of everything. That's not a, that's not a winning message because that's not a, that's not something you can turn around into something constructive. Uh, At least, you know, not something that can, that can be constructive across the political divide. I mean, it, it, it would be constructive within its own sort of post-revolutionary, you know, uh, regime, you know, if, if like, if those guys all won, you know, if those people took control of everything, then it could, it could then proceed to build off of that. It's like, okay, well, so that's, you know, we've destroyed the old and we're going to build the new. Um, but for reasons we will discuss today, that sort of total revolutionary success is just not possible in this country. That's not the way the island works. That's not, you know, that's not what we have in front of us. Right. Plus, um, I mean, historically blowing everything up to start anew has really, I doesn't not, work. Anywhere. Is there any example of that working out well anywhere? Well, and anytime we have talk, you have a revolution and people are like, we're going to call this year zero. That's when, you know, beheadings are about to start. Right. And, but then now it's like, what do we mean by work? Because, you know, I mean, China, they shouldn't have had to suffer through the cultural revolution, but it's not like the country just like slid into the ocean, you know? Um, right. Like we have to acknowledge that, um, these other systems, well, I mean, do, I, I would, I would know, say that the cultural revolution didn't achieve anything though. Anything right. Positive. No, 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 I totally, I oh, okay. totally agree. But my, my point is just, um, but, I mean, France is still there, despite the French Revolution going too yeah. far. Yeah. And not only still there, I mean, they, you know, they, they single-handedly took on all of Europe. Right. And, and fought them to a standstill for 20 years, you know, before, in almost 20 years. Um, yeah. Of course, that had a lot to do with happen, happening to have 
both a method and strategists capable of revolutionizing the way warfare had been fought for the first time in 2000 years or so um, in terms of the mass mobilization of populations. That was something that really hadn't. Wait, are you, are you saying that the revolution worked? No, I'm a, saying in a new that, way. <laughs> that, well, I guess maybe. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm saying that the trying to wipe everything out from the old wasn't a functional part, but I'll Obviously, certainly, yeah, no, I'll I, certainly I, I, concede any number of issues as far as military reorganization and Napoleon's ability to yeah. come in and revolutionize warfare. Um, <laughs> back to uh, the Electoral College. <laughs> no, actually, no, this actually, it, you just cut me off before I was going to have the perfect way to respond to this, which is that this episode is going to talk a fair bit about the difficulties that America has because of the way its political system is currently structured and the way people <clears throat> act within it. But if you look at France right now with Emmanuel Macron, you see something that a lot of Americans would be envious of, which is that you can have this one election where they've now had this new guy from a new party that's just been created, and his new party have swept the legislatures. They've taken all the power they should ostensibly need, and they've got a lot of the right ideas behind them. And yet somehow his approval rating is lower than Trump's. And he's not getting the stuff through. So when we talk about the flaws in America's electoral system, we have to be bearing in mind that um, there are flaws that exist in all of these systems and that, uh, you know, there are obstacles to progress that come in many different forms. And right now we're going to talk about the ones that America is dealing with, but we have to be mindful um, of the way that some of this stuff has been going on in other places. I mean, in Britain, so much of so even if you think Brexit was a good thing, the fact that it basically tore apart the government that was there and they had to have a new election to replace. Well, then they put in someone new who was not quite as competent and then they had to have another snap. They chose to have another snap election and then that went the opposite of the way they thought. And then that forced some more extreme parties to be into the coalition. The point is that every system has its flaws. And today we're going to talk about the ones that are wrong with America's because um, based on our SoundCloud data, America is where most of our listeners live. And also because I could not talk for more than about two minutes in any semi-intelligent fashion about the French or British electoral systems. So yeah. let's, let, let's step back to that way that America is designed to prevent sudden progress. I mean, America's constitution, which is based in many ways off of a lot of things you'll see in the classical world, um, is because we have our we have our Senate. I mean, a word that comes to us from Latin. Um, we have our House of Representatives that's to be more of the common people. The Senate that's more of the elite, the aristocracy, and then the presidency that takes the the place of the monarch for us, our equivalent of it. And um, and uh, the way that we choose people at each of those levels, which has changed over the years. I mean, we don't elect, we, we now directly elect senators. We didn't used to do that. They used to be chosen by state legislatures. Um, we've, which Republicans, I mean, some Republicans uh, have proposed, I mean, there's like um, on the same level as the uh, balanced budget amendment, there's a, you know, direct election of, or not um, direct, but like, right. you know, put Indirect. the appointment of senators. Yeah. Back to the state legislatures. I think Ted Cruz actually supported both, if I'm not mistaken. But anyway, wouldn't surprise me. I yeah. mean, we had the old system and we chose to go to the new system for a reason. Right. Um, that doesn't mean that every amendment is good. There's only been one amendment that's been repealed so far, right. um, which ironically happened to have been passed around the same time as the direct election of senators. Right. Uh, which I believe was 1913. Um, I mean, prohibition came later, but it's the same general era. Uh, yeah, so when it comes to the the particular, um, it seems like we've had a governing crisis essentially nonstop since about 2010 in America. And if you want to talk about things not functioning well, it goes back further. But it feels almost as though our government has been putting itself in a state of almost constant crisis for the last seven years or so. And a lot of that has to do with the way our electoral system is structured. Uh, because you have a pre we had a president under Obama who was trying to do things, and then we had a midterm election where people, not a lot of people voted, and the people who voted just were really mad at Obama, and they had the power to switch control of the House and just hold up everything. 
And we had seen in 2006 that it was an effective strategy to just hold up pretty much everything. And so people said, we're going to be even more disruptive than they were then. And then in 2012, the American electorate, more of it shows up and Barack Obama gets reelected and they make a little bit of progress back. Then 2014, once again, you get this midterm election where not a lot of people show show up and the people who do tend to really hate the incumbent. And we give control of the Senate over the Republicans and then they decide that they don't have to hold hearings for a Supreme Court nominee. They can just do that. And then we end up with this 2016 election where the winner got fewer votes, which, I mean, and and has been on, – on this show, there's a little bit of an assumption that you can just – we can just stipulate as fact right now that Trump is terrible. Um, <laughs> I mean, right now, we can just stipulate Trump is terrible and that a system that results in Trump has its flaws. Uh <laughs> We, we analyze that at length in a different episode. We'll probably analyze it at greater length in forthcoming episodes. But America has gotten itself into a situation where, in a sort of the thing speaks for itself, you kind of expect that this means there must be something wrong with the system. David, what do you think is wrong with the system? <clears throat> yeah, well, uh, I mean, I think, again, that uh, I think we've, you know, we've talked about this to some degree, but I... And this is this is implicit in a lot of what you said uh, about the comparative approach uh, here. That you know all systems have their problems because all these systems are dealing with human beings, and we have our problems. And so, um, you know, better systems are systems that encourage us to be better, and worse systems are systems that. Um, that don't or that make us make us worse than we would otherwise be. Um, and sort of the, the problem, I mean, even with the American system as it was intended to work is that it relies on the tensions uh, within the society pulling against each other. So it, it just assumes that. And that's actually why it was so successful uh, is that it didn't, it did not assume that the monarch have it, you know, because the monarch was the holder of the divine mandate to govern, you know, therefore the monarch would make the best decisions for all people. Like it didn't make such magical assumptions about human nature. It relied on the opposite assumption that our human nature was to be um, divisive and particular and selfish and prideful and, uh, and therefore attempted to harness those, those factors what I think we see now is that, um, you know, there are no happy warriors. There are no, you know, there are no, uh, there's, there's much less of a sense of, you know, going and, uh, slogging it out in the swamp and, you know, gaining some for your side and giving some to the other side. And at the end of the day, you know, you try to make peace with what you could achieve. Um, there's much more anxiety and frustration that comes from that tension where nothing, nothing seems to work at all. Um, I actually saw a really fascinating, uh, post by Tyler Cohen about this, that, uh, I still can't, I still can't remember if it's Cohen or Cowan. Um, but in any case, making the point that, um, the various indicators, social and economic indicators, uh, from the middle of the 20th century, middle, so from basically World War II to the, to like 1982, were really bad compared to where we are now. However, World War II and the Depression were still a relatively fresh memory. So, um, you had this sense of, gratitude and optimism coming from the fact that like, Oh man, we got out of that terrible catastrophe. And yes, even though, you know, we could have, you know, total nuclear devastation and elimination of all life on the planet, even though we have stagflation, even though, you know, we can read in the newspaper, like lots of lynchings and, um, you know, uh, sort of outright racism, um, in a way that, 
you know, there's just all these indicators that are just actually much worse than, than we are now, than how we have things now. Nevertheless, people were somewhat optimistic because of that background of what they came from. Uh, and then things started to turn around and improve in a lot of ways, uh, for the next several, you know, the next couple decades. Um, despite the fact that we had sort of real wage stagnation for so many sectors of the population, you had other people who were doing really well. And so overall, a lot of these indicators improved, but now, um, there's nothing to help. There's nothing to save us. You know, there's no sort of national global catastrophe that we've, you know, that we can emerge from with thanks, you know, for our lives, um, to sort of reorient our baseline expectations. And then in the meantime, all these indicators are just not getting better fast enough for us to feel good, um, in any way. And so this sort of baseline mood, um, for the nation is, you know, not in a good place. And then you add to that, like, the, you know, the post was making that point simply. Um, but then you applied it to, you know, our political system, which just assumes constant tension and fighting, <laughs> you know, and relies on it and does nothing to fix it and precludes, uh, the resolution of it because, there's always a counterbalance. Right. You know? Yeah. And when you talk about a resolution of it, one of the other ideas that I think has been very pernicious in our society um, is one that started to emerge um, in the Bush years. And I think really started becoming a thing that was said in 2004 in that uh, after the election, but before stuff like Hurricane Katrina, which was when Karl Rove started talking about a permanent governing majority for Republicans. Yeah. And I mean, as people who don't want Republicans to have a permanent governing majority, that's particularly frightening for us. But in a broader sense, the idea of a particular party that just gets to stay in power forever because of structural setups, be it gerrymandering or the structure of the Electoral College or um, any of the or just because you're winning culture wars, it doesn't tend to be very good or helpful for society to have one party um, be dominant like that. Especially not – one of the problems is that uh, if you get to maintain power for a long time without a serious challenge, I mean a lot of parties just run out of ideas. And the Republicans ran out of ideas before 2004. Um, right. One could well, argue I mean, this, whole, this whole conversation, I haven't brought it up, but I mean you, you placed the beginning of this process uh, you know, in 2006 when I think very obviously you know, in the contemporary period, Newt Gingrich right. started it. You know, well, that, I mean that's one of the things it. too. There's so many – possible starting points right well i mean to some extent obviously like you know when you're when you're in the opposition you attack the government you until you get into the government and so that's it's not no one started it because it's just the way it works right um but there's a better and a better and a worse way of doing it and you know the newt gingrich um you know vicious attacks and eventually you know, the government shutdown, right. I think, is a pretty strong evidence. A willingness to hold everything hostage to get what you want. Yeah, I think that's a, I think there's a pretty good case to be made that that's where. Yeah, you know, I think in earlier episodes period. we have placed Gingrich as sort of the start yeah. of the decline. Yeah, yeah, no, I just, I, and that's why I didn't bring it up until now, but just because we're, you know, we're, we're sort of digging in on this theme, it seemed worth, uh, worth no, mentioning. Yeah. Well, the other theme, just before we get too far afield from that, which is sort of implied in some of the dates that you've given before, but. Um, which we haven't said explicitly, some people talk about the 70-year problem, which is that that's about the range where uh, people forget about big mistakes in the past and they make them all over again. Yeah. And that's where a system tends to break down. And if you look mm -hmm. at a number of places, it holds up for certain areas better than others. But in the case of the U.S., you've got you know 1789, we get the Constitution. Then you get to 1860, <laughs> about 70 years later, you have the Civil War. Then you yeah. go another 70 years, you end up with the Great Depression, and, and which results, of course, in a massive expansion of the federal government and what it does. And then you get another – then, then you jump another 70 years, and that's where you hit the Great Recession, yeah. um, where once again people made a lot of mistakes similar to ones before the Great Depression. And – I mean different, but similar. Um, 
And uh, and then you end up once again with this crisis of the system, because as you were saying, people don't have the fresh memories of some of the mistakes that have been made in the past. So we make those mistakes all over again. Um, another example of yeah. this, some well, of the other 70 year examples are um, the Soviet Union lasted about 70 years before <laughs> people were finally like, yeah, we're done with this. Yeah, right, that's funny. Um, yeah, I think I think you might have mentioned that 70 year thing before, but I'd, I'd forgotten. So it's good to hear it again. Um yeah, generations. I mean, you know, seventy-year rule is like a, it's like a voxy one. Right. It's a very voxy way thing. of of saying like generations. You know, yeah. function differently, um, and uh, and so many things seem to skip a generation. Right. Like that's the that's what we're talking about. It's right. skipping a generation. So, you know, support for the revolution. You know, it happens, and then you know the kid, the children of the revolution see how it it like actually doesn't work. Um, and they cha- try to change something, but then their children don't actually know what the revolution was. And so they romanticize it. And then, right. you know, it goes back. And also just that sense of unity that, that fades. There's a sense of unity right. in the right. revolution sure, that then goes away with the time of the civil war, where people are back to thinking of themselves as states. Yeah. Yeah. Except, I mean, I guess there still was plenty of that even at the time of the revolution, but I remember reading once in a Civil War class, um, I don't think you were in the same, it was David Blight's class. Yeah, no, I didn't. Um, there was a line about um, how it was after the Civil War that people started, stopped saying, stopped phrasing it yeah. as the United States are and started phrasing it as the United States is. Yeah. The idea that now we were one country rather than a collection of smaller ones. Yeah. So... Yeah. Um, yeah. So, uh, as you said, you can go back to 1994-ish with the rise of Newt Gingrich for some of our current problems, and uh, to a certain but it's extent, it's a feature, not a bug. And to, right, to yeah. use my own sort of horrible uh, neologism, uh, it's you know it's the way the system is designed to work, and um, that I think you know it's it's just it's a we're getting kind of far. I know it's a, it's a, there's probably no way in which we were actually going to like just talk about technical aspects. Of, oh, I was never. I never planned to do that. Go right. on. So, um, so to the extent that that, yeah, that just wasn't possible. So we're still we're talking about the American system, but we're kind of getting we're kind of riffing on the theme. I think that um, it's an interesting question of when the I offer you nothing but blood, sweat, and tears line is one that can summon people to action and sort of productive action. And when it's just like, I don't want to hear that. I want to hear how you're going to solve my problem. Um, because you know, what I'm saying and what I fundamentally believe is that, you know, there's no cavalry waiting over the hill. There's no, you know, prophet who's going to lead us out of this, you know, mire we're in the mire. I believe Donald Trump is that prophet. Yeah, indeed. He told yeah. us he was. He told us he was. And, you know, Bernie's uh, Bernie's just getting younger every day. Yeah. So, um, uh, you know, so, so like, this is just the way it is. And it's going to be frustrating. And we just have to suck it up. Um, and, you know, obviously I'm not a politician and I'm not in the position of like testing how that, you know, how, how David wheel for, you know, state Senate, suck it up America. <laughs> I mean, no, to not, me, not I would actually kind of like it if, because it's, it's interesting because people always want to have these fantasies about what if we ran an election where we told it like it really is. Right. And you know, those never seem to happen. And uh, people, I remember the movie, do you ever, do you ever see the movie Bullworth? Right. Which is about yeah, 20 yeah. years old. Yeah, which is right. which is a riff on that theme of what if we just said what we really think and we yeah. get elected and it would all be great. But when there's a reason well, I mean, people... the, the, the sick reality is that Trump did, did that in a, in right. a way. Yeah, I mean, he said he what he lying. really thought. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He said what he really thought, but it was just nonsense all the time. Right. Yeah. People had people had begun to equate careful political speech with lying. And right. so anything that wasn't careful political speech, they assumed to be true, even though it was a much greater lie. Yeah. We were rebelling against a part of our systemic problem and not um, the deeper yeah. cause, which is that people don't want to hear harsh truths. 
Right. Well, but again, to be, um, you know, to be honest with ourselves, we, again, I, I would suggest have to admit that, um, even these, uh, you know, these outbursts from Trump that are, that, sh- that anyone should be able to look at and say, yeah, that's not real. That's not true. You know, the ones that are effective are effective because there is a grain of truth, you know? And so again, the, the, you know, the NFL protests, the, the Black Lives Matter stuff, you know, the, the problem is that some of those people, not all of them, not many of them even, but some of them, some of the protesters are really not doing themselves any favors because they actively reject the value of the, the, the sort of inherited symbols of the society. They say those symbols are, are rooted in, you know, this, um, unspeakable crime. And if you were going uh, to choose a losing message, that would basically be it. And they're choosing a losing message. Um, and they're particularly choosing a losing message for the, for the country we inhabit where, um, you know, how, how is progress made? It's made by, you know, it's made on the margins. It's made in the battlefield states, you know, and it's easy for the purist to police the borders of their pure, you know, ideological homeland. Uh, and it's hard to actually go into the marches, you know, into the, you know, into Missouri or, you know, uh, the, the Northern Virginia, not even Northern Virginia, but like, you know, the even further suburbs in Virginia to like, uh, you know, get these, these seats that actually change hands, uh, in, in elections and convince people to, you know, to support your message. And, um, Yeah, because like big waves do happen, um, and so when I say like there's no there's no salvation waiting, uh, I, my only point is that um, the salvation isn't free. You know, it just doesn't and, like. And the wave might not bring salvation. That was what happened in two thousand six, two thousand eight. You had a big right. wave against what was going on, and yeah. in two thousand six, two thousand eight, would you have thought that in ten years the forces of you can just cut taxes on the rich as much as you want and it will increase growth? I mean. If you took what the Trump administration is doing now, it's sort of the most caricatured extreme of what we were saying about Republicans back in 2006, 2008. And it's more powerful than ever after a wave election, uh, two wave election. Yeah, I mean, it controls more. But intellectually, it's government. not more powerful, but in a practical sense, it is. Well, I mean, but again, though, like part of this whole point is uh, part of the part of what a big part of what we've been saying is that despite having nominal power. Uh, they aren't actually able to do anything, you know. Yeah, and Trump so, is, but they're destroying a lot of things through inaction, like or through executive yeah, orders. But, but then also, again, you know, so like salvation in the big sense, obviously, it will never come. Um, but salvation in sort of more limited sense, like yeah, two thousand eight, you passed the Affordable Care Act, and it has been salvation for millions of Americans. That's you true. know, it certainly helped me. Um, in terms of the people who, yeah, right. And so salvation and then not, you know, not millions, but it's like definitely saved the lives of lots and lots of Americans over the last, um, you know, eight years. So that's, that's salvation. That's real. Um, so it's not like none of this matters. It's just that it's hard and frustrating and it'll never not be frustrating. And I think simply passing the law doesn't end the discussion. Exactly. Well, this is, I mean, The back and forth of our system is, you know, it's good and it's also bad. The idea of a permanent governing majority for either side would be disastrous if it ever happened, in my opinion. But But it never will. And that's the other thing, because, like, um, I mean, I I still remember, like, in 2004, reading an Economist article about how, you know, George W. Bush had shown the way that the Republicans were going to lock the Latino community into their orbit. You know, that they were going to take these religious, you know, in many ways, socially conservative, um, you know, this demographic. And it was a natural constituency for, you know, compassionate conservatives. And, you know, that's the way it was going to be. Well, he did show them the way. They just needed to be compassionate conservatives. <laughs> exactly. And it turns right, out they were exactly. not. So. Yeah, he showed them the way. And then, uh, you know, Steve he said, King what if said, we took uh, that but hated them off. more? <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
Um, um, yeah, there's a like in the few remarks we've just made. There's like a lot of other directions to go on, and I might as well but, go but the, on. But oh. the point, but the, the point I wanted to make here is, you know, we're talking about governing majorities, and it's like, you know, there was never a like permanent Republican governing majority, um, and there was never and will never be the you know demographic demography is destiny, Hillary Clinton rainbow coalition thing. Not only because there it turns out they're actually still are a lot of white voters um, who were not appealed to. Um, but also because, you know, that that demographic alliance might work for a, a little while, but then issues will change and the, you know, the coalitions will have to change. So there's, yeah. the, you know, there is never anything permanent when it well, comes to... I mean, to bring that into what we're ostensibly talking about, um, part of the problem was that, I mean, Hillary got... 2.9 million more votes. Right. But the problem was that those new wonderful elements of the coalition were not placed in the right spots. Yeah. America's political some... system doesn't mean that more votes wins. It means that you have to distribute your votes correctly. And her votes were distributed very inefficiently. The states yeah. that she ended up losing that were the critical ones, we're talking about Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. These are not exactly the most Latino populated states. And um, and yeah. I've heard also that one of the problems with the idea that Texas will eventually go blue because of Latinos, one of the problems with that is that Texas Latinos don't actually vote the same way as Latinos across the entire country do, in part because Texas Republicans do a better job trying to appeal to them. Right. Right. And, um, you know, there are all sorts of issues like, um, I mean, you know, Latinos presumptively um, – you know, react and obviously do, you know, react uh, very strongly to the to the racist elements of right. the immigration debate. But, um, you know, recent immigrants are the ones who are under the most wage pressure from, you know, the next most or like the even more recent illegal uh, undocumented immigrants. And so, you know, their incentives are complicated as all human beings are and so you can't rely on you know all working class um you know latinos in the country to say oh we don't like racism and therefore you know all anti-immigrant voices are racist voices and therefore we oppose all people who have any anti-immigration standpoints like that's just not realistic uh even though there are so many racists uh, on that side in that camp, you know, people ha are willing to tolerate things that they don't like as long as it gets them something that they want. And, you know, this brings us back to obviously Harvey Weinstein and all sorts of other, uh, all sorts of other issues. But, you know, in this case, it's the question of, you know, when do you start, paying credence to rumors, you know, and at what point do you say like, ah, eh, this guy's, you know, I hear bad things about this guy. Therefore I no longer want his support. You know, like we actually didn't talk about that, that aspect of it um, prior to the show. And we don't really need to get into it now. Although actually, if we're talking about the American political system, the whole donor class, um, you know, formal electoral rules, constitutional setup, you know, political landscape, and then where the money comes from is actually a, a crucial part of that as well. Yeah. But, but, um, but that's maybe too far afield. Well, nothing's ever too far afield. But what I <laughs> want to talk about right now is when we talked about wave elections, I mean, in this, the American political system is structured in such a way that the things that become our recurring problems can also be our salvation. And right. gerrymandering leads to one of those situations. It's, because 50 minutes into the podcast, we should probably mention some technical aspect of the American political system. Um, and what, what I mean by this is, um, so anybody listening to this is probably familiar with gerrymandering. It's a term that goes back to founder Eldridge Jerry from the founding of the Republic where he would draw districts that one of them was weird enough that it, somebody said it looked like a salamander and somebody joked and said, no, it's a gerrymander. And so gerrymandering is the ability to draw your congressional districts such that uh, they're really weirdly shaped but happen to allow you to win comfortably or 
to allow you to slice up an electorate so that even though you get fewer votes, you get the majority of the seats. Um, but what's important to bear in mind is that those two aspects are in tension with, with one another. Each individual politician wants to be in a very safe district, but the party as a whole wants them all to win by like 2 to 3% so that they can maximize their votes and get as many people in Congress as possible. And that tension is part of what the Supreme Court has seen behind gerrymandering that has made them so far think that it's acceptable. We're going to find out how true that is when this current case uh, about Wisconsin's gerrymandering um, comes up, because uh, supposedly Anthony Kennedy was, he seemed to think that they might, from the oral arguments, it's always hard to guess from that how things are going to go, but it certainly sounded like he was getting closer to being convinced about the problems of partisan gerrymandering um, that was put before them, because what's happened is... Or more to the point, about the possibility of a solution. It's not that any of them dismissed the problem, it's that right. they said there's no, there's no acceptable there's rule no, right. to actually apply yeah. to fixing the problem. He needed basically, like Kennedy basically wanted some semi-mathematical way to say, okay, here's your indicator for this being too gerrymandered, and in this Wisconsin case, they may have finally come up with a decent right. method. But, you know, fancy math, which could help possibly get us out of this problem fancy math is how we got into it because in the olden days you know you're just drawing lines on a map by hand trying to figure out where to make your district this is why i mentioned before that america's politics get closer and closer to a solved game the problem is that as computers get better and better the gerrymandering gets better and better and you find out yourself in a situation like 2012 i don't have the numbers in front of me but if i recall correctly democrats there were more votes cast for democrats for congress than republicans and yet Republicans got a majority of, in the House um, of Representatives. And uh, I remembered election night where you got Mitch McConnell and John Boehner saying, well, maybe they returned Obama, but the American people voted for Republicans. The American people, the will of the people is for Republicans to be in um, in in the House of Representatives in the, uh, the House of Representatives. And, you know, that's kind of an absurd thing to claim when you're getting fewer votes. But gerrymandering has allowed them to do it. And it's allowed them to stay in power despite getting, you know, the the margins are not what you the margins are kind of absurd in certain states. Again, I don't have the numbers yeah. in front of me, but you can have a situation where you get, you know, 49 percent of the votes. And that results in getting something like a third or fewer of the seats and. Uh, or sometimes even you can have more votes cast for you total and end up with fewer seats. And that's that's a problem that is intrinsic to having geographically based congressional seats. And I'm not sure how our system and our Constitution could ever move away from that. Yeah, um, we could have. I mean, Iowa has tried the we'll have independent commissions make the districts. And, you know, you look at maps of Iowa and things are a lot closer to being square shaped. But. Yeah. If you if you really want to sit down and dissociate from uh, the consequences of what you're looking at, whether it's weird, if you look at a weirdly drawn district, that might actually make a certain degree of sense based on the geography of the area. Like, right? Yeah, I mean, a uh, normal district that really does make sense, like a town, isn't a square usually. Yeah, I mean, there, and there are rules for this, and this is part of the whole. Um, you know, part of this whole, I mean, the part of the reason it actually had to go to the Supreme Court because it's complicated and um, uh, sort of uh, commonality of interest, I think, is uh, at least something like the term uh, of art that is used for this, um, where, you know, th there has to be a community of shared interests, you know, in, in, in the district. Um, and that community of shared interests, like, may look like a sort of compact blob but it may not because um there could be a know, mountain that you're sort of like around and maybe the there, mountain ridge has you shaped weirdly exactly and like an interior you know a coastline area like all the coastline areas are you know have similar demographics and similar industry and similar um you know interests broadly writ you know and all the interior areas that are maybe you know, the interior is closer to many points on the coast than other points of the coast are, but, you know, the coastal areas are much more similar to each other, even if they're farther away. I mean, you can, you can easily you understand see that on the electoral map. When you look at the breakdown yeah, by county, right, exactly. and the blue is all along the edges, and right. that's just... and. 
which well, leads to the unfortunate optical illusion. So that's why they put compactness, you know, as right. a different value that they have to weigh against the commonality of interest. Yeah. yeah. The, the, the problem here is it's, it's complicated. And part of where the problem has gotten us is simply because, as I said, we get closer to a solved game in terms of how you gerrymander. And it gets closer to a solved game in terms of how you behave when you're elected, because we have more and more data and we know more and more things about what places and what, what, what positions you should be taking. And, um, like the, 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 the Republicans sort of made the unprecedented decision. We're just not going to hear the Supreme court justice. Yeah. That was a move that would have seemed just like unfathomable a few years earlier. And then they did it and it worked and they got the seat. It was yep. completely successful for them. And now yep. in the future, because we've all taken that step towards the hill together and we said, oh, this one's higher, <laughs> we now right. know that that's successful. And if the Democrats take back the Senate in uh, the 2018 midterms, will any appointee that Donald Trump makes get a, get a, get a hearing for anything? Why should they? Right. They know now that there's no consequence for it. Right. And a lot of ground to make up in terms of the, yeah. you know, the partisan tit for tat. Um yeah, no, it's uh, it's it's bad. It's bad. It's very bad. Right. And um, it's, it's bad in part because I mean, you know, we talked about the, the, the factions pushing against each other and, and these problems that we get from this solved this closer to a solved game of partisan warfare. But we can sort of look back at the country doing a bit better when Democrats and Republicans treated each other more nicely outside of the chamber. We talk about, oh, they used to have dinner together, they used to get drinks together, they used to have lunch together, and now they just hate each other and never talk to each other anymore. And everything's about constant war, because you have to constantly be at war with them so that you can show that you know you hate the other side and you're, um, you're trying to get that permanent governing majority. And all the unpleasantness that they're forcing us through now is so they can give us something better in the future. We saw that this week when Trump said, I'm going to take this ridiculous stance on the ACA that's going to cost the government more money, $200 billion more money, simply because I think all the pain and suffering that this will cause will be eventually alleviated by the fact that it'll be so horrific that it will tear down a system I didn't like. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I mean, I, I should not go into depth into this conversation because I'm obviously inclined to that position, you know, that sort of condemnation of, of Trump. Um, but I, uh, my, I heard that even the CBO score though said, you know, they suggested that, um, there would be an immediate catastrophic impact, but that they just assumed, you know, for some reason, even the CBO assumed that the number of insured would, would climb subsequent to that and that it would end up with, a lot more people insured. I, that may be a rumor, um, and that's why I, I'm hesitant to go into this. Well, I mean, if it's topic. raw number versus like per capita number. Yeah, I mean, they're all, exactly. This is my point. Right. There are all sorts of. Uh, I mean, uh, we, yeah, it's it, it's something where um, I'm totally primed to share your condemnation um, for Trump's, you know, utterly irresponsible approach. Um, you know, and part of the reason it's irresponsible is that it's trying to totalize in this incremental system. And it's just, it's just a category error. He just doesn't understand where he is. Um, part of the problem is that the totalizing um, maximalist position has, in all the ways that you've described and that we've talked about, you know, it has shown... Um, gains you know it has borne fruit for for many of the participants um but at what cost you know at what cost all the people who are suffering in the meantime yeah um yeah anyway well you know we've hit the hour mark we could actually try and wrap I think we should i think we've been... because i don't think we're going to get any more coherent uh at this point <laughs> plus yeah, to be totally uh, honest, that's exactly there's a lot it, we didn't yeah. talk about but i don't think our audience really needs us to get into the mechanics of the filibuster I don't think they really need us to get into the mechanics of the electoral college. Yeah, I, right. I mean, I think many of them, uh, you know, understand it as well as we right. do. Although I have, I have no idea who's listening to this. Uh, well, we uh, know your father listens to an episode right. when he has time. I know yeah. my father does not listen to this. Um, and we but... know two Yale friends, at least, have, have yeah, outed themselves. Have, have yeah. mentioned it. I have one friend that I play Magic the Gathering with who he said he's behind but enjoys the show. Yeah. Um, 
Well, I, uh, well, I mean, the one thing I think I could quickly add on the filibuster is that you know the filibuster was originally to solve a problem, which was you used to have to have unanimous consent on all of these things. I said, well, what if we right. only needed 90 votes? And then the 90 votes kept getting cut down, and then eventually got cut down to 60. And that just right. has to do with how the Senate used to work. And we view this as if it's this extra new proposition, but it's actually something that has made the Senate work better than when the uh, requirement was higher. But the problem is now people don't give their consent to move things forward because that's part of the solved game. Part of the solved game is... Um, you know, it used to be, okay, well, we'll just move to discussion on this because I have nothing else to add before we get to discussion. And, right. well, you know, now we're done debating, so let's cut off debate. Well, now people know as a matter of a solved game that is a practical matter, if you don't cut off debate, you don't get a vote. And then they made it easy enough that they said they indicate that they will filibuster and then they just don't hold the vote at all. So the filibuster right. became a veto instead of simply being um, a procedural thing. And that's yeah. part of us just or it's like a, how it's the like, system works. Well, because, I mean, fundamentally – uh, power is voting, you know, right. power is about voting. And we see this in Puerto Rico where, you know, right. Yeah. Like there are Americans there, but they're, you know, and there are Americans in Texas and the Americans in Texas get aid, immediate aid, um, because, well, you know, you could make the argument that it's about race. Um, and that's, there's some truth to that. Um, but I think it's quite clear that if the, you know, if Puerto Ricans were able to vote for president, you know, on the island, and they were represented by, um, you know, they'd have uh, they'd have like four or five representatives, you know, if they were factored in to, uh, you know, if they were given voting members. Right. Um, well, D.C. would have any representatives if it were as somebody yeah. who lives in D.C. DC would have one. Yeah, yeah. Um, we'd get two you know, senators. Exactly, but, this is, but this is the point. This is this yeah. is exactly, I mean, this is the point that I'm making. It's about it's about voting power, and um, with the filibuster versus you know final voting, it's just like uh, it's just voting arbitrage. You know, it's just they realize that their vote here is worth more than the same vote there, and so it changes the way the system. Like once that realization was made, and the norm to move on to debate, you know, to to do more by consensus, to do you know to to be as genteel as possible. Once that was replaced by this, um, or as that was replaced, since it's not like this happened just once, right. you know, it's just a gradual process. Um, there, you know, more of a cal more of a calculation, as you put it. This uh, imagine this if game. those what are there three million people in Puerto Rico, something like that. Yeah. Imagine like imagine if if just a chunk of those people now move to Florida and have very angry feelings about the Republican Party because of this. Indeed, like that it would could, change a lot of things. That's one of those things that could change. It could change a lot of things, and I mean that's part of the American system. The it, it, like the electoral college unbalancing certain people's um, votes can also, I mean, it can cut against either party at a particular time, and we'll just have to see. But for now, we're going to leave this subject here with one of our shortest episodes, and I will now give you this sign off. Now, in terms of talking about the American political system and what's wrong with it. Uh, a big chunk is how we're not listening. We're not looking at the same news sources. We're we're looking at things that are very different. And if you're watching Fox News, you get a different perspective on things. So I'm going to introduce you to a little game I like to play on Facebook now and again, uh, which I think David has seen before, called hashtag Fox News. <laughs> this is where when I go over to the news app on my phone, um, you know, you see four stories, two top stories and two trending stories. And they're all from different outlets. And you get to take a look at, there's usually, and I want to make this clear, that while I don't screenshot literally everything, this is so much less cherry-picked than you're going to think. This is a pretty reasonable representation of what I see. It'll be three stories from other news sources that are about real issues of the day, and then an issue from Fox News that's completely out of left field. We're going to start uh, going backwards a little bit. Um, from ones that happened just the other day because these things are a little fresher. Um, this is from Friday. We have the Mercury News. Update. Great progress, but challenges ahead for firefighters in wine country blazes. Vox. What Trump's decision to decertify the Iran nuclear deal really does. CNN. Woman dies in husband's arms while hiding in swimming pool from California fires. Fox News. Judicial Watch says FBI has found Clinton-Lynch tarmac meeting documents. 
move to October 8th. Hurricane Nate makes second U.S. landfall. The Wall Street Journal, Trump says only one thing will work to reign in North Korea. CNN, nuclear test leaves Chinese city shaken. Fox News, opinion, parent furious over teachers shooting at Trump quiz answer. <laughs> October 7th. Trump says only one thing will work to reign in North Korea. CNN, speedy Hurricane Nate closes in on Gulf Coast. CNN, Rex Tillerson should quit now. Fox News, outrage as Nevada professor suggests Trump deserves blame for Las Vegas massacre. Uh, again on October 7th, the Washington Post. Hurricane Nate strengthens on its path to Gulf Coast landfall Saturday evening. CBS News. Crash near London Museum, not terror-related, police say. CNN. Rex Tillerson should quit now. Fox News. Kathy Griffin's neighbor files for restraining order, claims comedian spies on him. These are just a few examples to give you right now of what it's like when you really look at what Fox is showing versus what some of the other uh, news sources, legitimate news sources are saying. Now, obviously, because a lot of those Fox things show up under the trending category, they can have more to do with what people click on than necessarily being a top story. But the consistency that I have found throughout the several months I've been doing this now is that Fox News is always giving you this really weird parallel world where no matter what the horrible story of the trump administration is that day they will have some reason for you to be outraged at liberals instead even people who don't matter i mentioned there's a kathy griffin one in there there was a rosie o'donnell one at one point obviously lots of anti-clinton stuff even though the election is over and that's just something i think we all need to bear in mind that we really are living in parallel worlds as far as our news is concerned and uh we should we should try to Bridge that informational divide with people on a, as friendly a basis as we can on an individual one-to-one basis. I don't know what you can do about that on a mass source, but it's, it's, it's definitely a thing. We'll see you next week. Bye.